0: Some real-life stories defy belief, and we are amazed how many truly horrific true stories there are to choose from. In this episode, we'll be looking at tragic cases, one that is so disturbing, we could not go into too much detail. It's hard for us to say hit those lights, sit back and enjoy, as these cases are not enjoyable. They are stuff of nightmares. But here are five deeply disturbing real-life horror stories. David Harker, the British Cannibal, This next case is horrific and sad that resulted in the deaths of three people. David Harker had problems from a young age. He would torture and mutilate small animals for fun, and at the age of 16, he was sent to Durbold Young Offenders Institution in County Durham for attacking two men and killing their dog. After his release, he fell out with his parents, and in 1995, at the age of 23, Harker moved to Darlington in County Durham, England, In Darlington, Harker became part of the skateboard scene and he surrounded himself with young impressionable friends. He was known to be intelligent, caring and polite and had no trouble charming women. Although his appearance was a little intimidating as he had tattooed on his shaved head the words subhuman and disorder. Harker also had a darker controlling side that came out when he was drunk that often ended with tantrums, aggression and violence. He also had a sick obsession with serial killers and would spend hours in his flat, reading macabre books and watching grisly videos, fantasizing about his desire to become Britain's youngest serial killer. Sadly, 31-year-old Julie Patterson was the person Harker chose to carry out his sick fantasies. Julie was a troubled lady. She had recently lost custody of her four children and was battling depression, alcohol and Valium addiction. It wasn't unusual for her to go out on benders and not return home for several days. So when she didn't come home in mid-April 1998, her partner, Alan Taylor, was not unduly alarmed. It was only when Julie missed crucial appointments with her children that he alerted the police. After a public appeal, police received information that Julie was last seen on April 16th in the company of David Harker. They also received a tip-off to search a secluded area where they were shocked to find parts of Julie's dismembered body in a sack. A search of Harker's flat provided police with all the proof they needed, when they found Julie's belongings and pools of blood on the floor. Prior to the gruesome find, Harker had bragged to several friends that he had killed Julie, but no one had believed him, believing it was just one of his drunken rants. Harker was arrested, but at first denied the crime, and refused to reveal where Julie's missing head and limbs were buried. His denial prompted a massive police search and the entire town was swept for Julie's remains. But after weeks of searching at a landfill site, the search was called off. Harker later confessed he killed Julie after meeting her in a pub and taking her back to his flat in Darlington. He then strangled her and claimed that he cut strips of flesh from her thighs, which he cooked and ate with pasta and cheese, before wiping down her body with bleach and sawing off her head and limbs. He then dumped the torso in his sack on Wasteland, near Darlington Football Club. Harker also claimed to have killed two more people, although no evidence of this claim was found. In a chilling insight into his twisted thinking, Harker told psychiatrists, people like me don't come from those films, them films come from people like me. On February 10, 1999, he was sentenced to life in prison after pleading guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility After being locked up, Harker began a letter-writing campaign to the press in a bid for attention, which he still periodically receives. Experts believe he uses the fact that he has never revealed where Julie's remains are as leverage to keep him in the news. In a twist to this horrific story, Julie's boyfriend, Alan, became obsessed with finding the rest of Julie's body and started digging holes all over Darlington. His grief caused him to turn to drink and drugs and in 2006, he murdered his friend, John Morrison, by strangling him with a belt. He claimed that he wanted to be sent to the same prison as Harker in order to exact revenge on his girlfriend's killer. Three months after being sentenced to life in prison, Alan committed suicide. To date, despite repeated attempts from her family, Julie's head and limbs have not been found, and the only man who knows where they are, it seems, is not about to give up the details. Joe Ball, The Butcher of Almendorf. You may not have heard of Joe Ball, but you might have heard of the film Eaten Alive that tells the story of a crazed Texas hotel owner who feeds his guests to an alligator he keeps at the back of the hotel. While that film, however far-fetched it seems, is based on a real-life character called Joe Ball. Joe Ball was born on January 7th, 1896, in Almondorf, Texas. He was the second of eight children born to Frank and Elizabeth, at the age of 21, Joe enlisted in the First World War and was shipped off to the front lines in Europe. In 1990, he received an honourable discharge from the army and returned to his hometown in Ellendorf. For a while, he worked for his father, but found it hard to adjust to civilian life after the horrors of war and soon quit. Joe then became a bootlegger, and he was so successful he even employed a helper called Clifton Wheeler, who by all accounts he treated appallingly. When prohibition ended, there was no call for bootleggers, so Joe opened a saloon, which he named the Sociable Inn. Even though the business seemed to be doing well, Joe felt he needed a gimmick to draw in customers and soon settled on the idea of having live alligators on the property. So he dug a hole behind the bar, filled it with water, and erected a 10-foot-tall fence around it before releasing five live alligators. Joe's idea was a success, and hordes of customers came in to look at his new pets, Joe made the alligators into a show and would throw live wild animals to the alligators, as the delighted punters cheered as they devoured them. Another thing that drew in male customers was the young girls Joe hired as waitresses and bartenders. Although it didn't go unnoticed, that none of them seemed to stay long. They were there one day and gone the next. In 1934, Joe met a woman named Mimi Gothard, and the couple began running the bar together. That was until Joe fouled for one of his young waitresses. Dolores' buddy Goodwin. Things became even more complicated in 1937, when Joe fell for another of his workers, 22-year-old Hazel Brown. With three women now vying for Joe's affections, something had to give. That is when Minnie disappeared. Joe explained her absence by telling everyone she had given birth to another man's baby. A few months later, Joe married Dolores, and later told her that Minnie had not run off. He had killed her by shooting her in the head and burying her in the sand of a local beach, but Dolores didn't believe her new husband and they never talked about it again. In January 1938, Dolores lost her left arm and rumors started to circulate that one of Joe's alligators was responsible, although it's thought she actually had it amputated after a car crash. However, she lost it, not long after Dolores disappeared and not long after, so did Hazel a neighbor started to complain about the smell of rotting meat and Joe told him to mind his own business or he would end up as gator food. Not long after, the neighbor allegedly moved to another city. It wasn't long before relatives of the girls who had gone missing started to inquire at Joe's bar of their whereabouts. Minnie's family were particularly persistent and got the sheriff involved and Joe became a suspect in her disappearance. Although there was no firm evidence to charge him, But the list of missing employees kept growing and locals started to suspect he had fed the missing girls to his beloved gators. When a neighbor came forward and told investigators that he had witnessed Joe cut meat off a human body and feed the pieces to alligators, things got much more serious. Investigators started to suspect the worst. And when another neighbor went to the sheriff telling him about a foul-smelling barrel Joe had left in his sister's barn, police went to arrest Joe at his bar. When they arrived at the bar, they told Joe that they were taking him in for questioning. Joe asked if he could first close down the tavern and deputies agreed. Joe immediately walked over to his cash register and pressed the no sale button. And when the drawer opened, he retrieved a .45 caliber revolver that he briefly waved at the officers before turning the gun on himself and shooting himself dead. After Joe's death, a thorough search of the bar revealed rotting meat around the gator pond and an ax matted with blood and hair, and they feared Joe had mutilated the missing girls and fed them to his gators. The only man who would know was Clifton Wheeler, who Joe had continued to employ. Eventually, Clifton admitted that Joe had killed Hazel Brown and he took them to an isolated spot near the San Antonio River, where he began to dig the loose soil. After a few minutes, blood began oozing out of the dirt and a horrendous smell began to emanate from the ground. Eventually, Clifton pulled out two arms, two legs, and finally a torso, but the head was missing. That's when Wheeler pointed to the remains of a campfire, and upon closer examination, investigators found a jawbone, some teeth, and pieces of a skull. Wheeler explained that Joe had forced him to transport Hazel's body in a barrel after he killed her in a fit of rage, and he helped Joe dismember the remains with a saw. Next, Wheeler led them to Minnie, who Joe had shot in the head after she told him she was pregnant. He then buried her on the beach, just as he had told Dolores. Wheeler told investigators they were the only two women Joe had killed. Dolores and a couple of the other missing women did turn up alive, but some of the women remained missing, and although allegedly none of the rotting flesh in the alligator pond was found to be human, many of the locals believed the missing women were fed to Joe's alligators. Whether they were dead or alive at the time does not bear thinking about. Joe's alligators were eventually seized by the state of Texas and donated to the San Antonio Zoo, where they lived out the remainder of their lives as a tourist attraction. While we may never know exactly how many people Joe Bull killed, or if any of them ever ended up as gator food, his cult-like popularity lives on to this day. Junko Feruta's 44 Days of Howl. This story is quite possibly one of the most shocking we've ever written about. Some of the details are so horrific, we are not going to describe them in detail. It's the kind of crime that makes you question how such grotesque human beings could exist. It's all the more disturbing when you realize they were barely older than children. Junko Furuta was a 16-year-old girl who lived in Masato, Japan. She was a popular student at a local school and was never in trouble. Unfortunately, it was her attractiveness that caught the eye of the school bully, a boy named Hiroshi Miyamo. But when he asked Junko on a date, and she turned him down, he was furious and was set on revenge. Miyano had links to Yakuza, a notorious Japanese organized crime syndicate. He and his mates were low-ranking members of the gang known as Chimpiras, and had previously engaged in various crimes. On November 25th, 1988, as Junko was riding her bike from home from her part-time job, one of Miyano's friends jumped out on her, causing her to fall from her bike. Hiroshi, who was waiting nearby, rushed to help her, offering to walk the shaken girl home. Unsuspecting Junko accepted this offer of kindness, not knowing it was part of his plan to abduct her. With the help of his friends, Miyano led Junko to an abandoned warehouse where he sexually assaulted her. The four friends then decided to kidnap the girl, and they took her to Nobuhuru's house, where they took it in turns to subject her to the most degrading assaults imaginable. They even forced her to call her parents and tell them that she had run away and not to look for her because she was doing well. Over the next 44 days, Junko was tortured and assaulted by over 100 different men who were invited to the house. She was beaten, starved, and subjected to horrific attacks using various objects, what is unbelievable in this case is that Minato's parents knew about the girl being captive in their house, but at first were told she was Miyano's girlfriend. But when Junko begged them to help her escape, they became fully aware of the horror that was taking place, but were too afraid of the Yakuza gang to call for help. Junko's horrific torture is far too disturbing to mention in this video, but can be found online. In the end, one of the boys who had participated in the assaults suddenly felt guilty and told his parents what was happening. Her parents called the police and they visited the Minato house, but incredibly they believed the Minatos when they said they had no idea what they were talking about. They even invited the police in to show they had nothing to hide, and sadly the police believed their story and left without searching the house. On January 4th, 1989, after another brutal attack, Junko went into convulsive seizures At first the boys thought she was faking it and did nothing to help her, but a few hours later she died. The boys panicked, and to get rid of her body, they put it in a 44-gallon drum, then filled it with wet cement, and dumped it into a cement truck in Koto, Tokyo. It would be over a year before Junko was discovered, after Miyana was questioned about the assault of a different girl, and he inadvertently confessed to what had happened to Junko. The police found the drum containing Junko's body the following day. Shockingly because the boys were underage by Japanese standards aged between 16 and 18, they were given lenient sentences. Miyano received a 20-year sentence and the others only seven. Minato's parents and brother were not charged and shockingly they blamed Junko for ruining their son's life, allegedly vandalizing her grave. This case is truly haunting and many including Junko's distraught parents believe that the sentences were too light for the severity of the crimes committed. Personally, we think this is an understatement and find it hard to believe those four men are free after what they did to poor Junko. Our hearts truly go out to her family and friends who have to live with the knowledge of what happened to her over those terrible 44 days. Teresa Noor It's rare for any mother to harm their children. Most mothers love their children unconditionally, but in the case of Teresa Noor, rather than love her children, She was jealous of them, and her seething envy led to two of the most heinous murders ever carried out by a mother. Teresa Cross was born on March 14th, 1946, in Sacramento, California. She had a relatively settled life growing up, until her mother died when she was 15 years old. After her mother's death, Teresa dropped out of school, and at 16 married her first husband, Clifford Clyde Sanders, and the following year gave birth to their first child, Howard. But her marriage was full of conflict, and after one year of the couple's many fights, Teresa shot Clifford dead with a rifle. She was charged with murder, but she pleaded not guilty, claiming self-defense. And at her trial in 1964, the jury agreed and she was released. The following spring, she gave birth to a second child, a girl named Sheila. A year later, Teresa married US Marine Bob Knorr, and the couple had four more children together. Susan, William, Robert, and Teresa Mary. This marriage ended in divorce, and Teresa went on to marry twice more, both of which marriages also ended in divorce. Teresa was physically, verbally, and psychologically abusive towards all of her children, and for years she abused and tortured them in various ways, including beating them, force-feeding them, and burning them with cigarettes. She also neglected the home they lived in, and their apartment was filthy and smelt of urine. As they grew up, a lot of her anger was aimed at her two eldest daughters, Sheila and Susan. They were turning into attractive young women, and she grew increasingly jealous of their beauty and slim figures. Things came to her head in 1982, when Teresa became convinced that Susan was casting spells on her to cause her to gain weight, and one day, she was so angry, she shot Susan from behind with a 44 caliber gun. The bullet lodged in Susan's back, but Teresa refused to allow her daughter to seek medical attention. Despite the lack of care, Susan survived, but not for long. After another argument with her mother in July 1984, Teresa stabbed Susan in the back with a pair of scissors. Again, she survived, but she told her mother she was moving to Alaska to escape the abuse. Teresa agreed on the condition she allowed her to remove the bullet lodged in her back in case she used it as evidence against her. Teresa sedated her daughter, using melaril capsules and alcohol, then ordered her 15-year-old son Robert to remove the bullet using an X-Acto knife. After the procedure, Susan developed sepsis and eventually fell unconscious. Thinking she was dead, Teresa packed up Susan's belongings in a trash bag and, after binding her arms, legs, and mouth, ordered her son Robert and William to drive their sister to Shaw Valley where they dumped her on the side of the road. Before dousing her with gasoline and setting her alight, Susan's smouldering body was found the next day. Horrifically, an autopsy determined that she was still alive when she was caught alight. Due to the state of the remains, a positive identification was never made and Susan was classified as a Jane Doe. Following Susan's death, Teresa began directing her anger and abuse towards her daughter Sheila and after accusing her of being pregnant and passing on an STD to her, Teresa beat Shelley, tied her up and locked her in a closet with no ventilation. On June 21, 1985, Sheila died of starvation and dehydration, but it was three days before Teresa realized her daughter was dead, and by then, her body was decomposing, causing an odorous smell to fill the apartment. Teresa again ordered her sons to dispose of the body, and they dumped it near the airport in Truckee, California. Sheila's body was discovered a few hours after, but was never positively identified and was classified as a Jane Doe. The smell in the apartment was so bad afterwards that Teresa moved the family out of the home and ordered her youngest daughter, Terry, to burn down the apartment in an effort to destroy any physical evidence. However, the fire did little damage as neighbors quickly reported it before it spread. But by this time, Teresa had fled. Teresa was arrested some years later after her surviving children severed their ties with their mother and her youngest child, Terry, reported her sister's murder to the Utah police. In 1993, Robert, William, and Teresa were arrested, although Robert was already prison for murdering a bartender. Teresa was spared the death penalty after a plea bargain, but was sentenced to two life sentences. She is currently incarcerated at California Institution for Women in Chino, California. She will be eligible for parole in 2027. Brett Mann. There can be few things more horrific than being stalked, but when the stalker is a 13-foot crocodile who has just carried off your mate, well, that is a whole new level of terror. On Sunday, December 21st, 2003, friends Ashley McGough, Brett Mann, and Sean Blowers began a fun day out quad biking in the Australian Outback. They left their homes at around 11.30 a.m. and an hour later arrived at their usual racing area, southwest of Kangaroo Flats on the edge of Litchfield National Park near Darwin, Australia. It was a place they knew well, and it was an ideal place for messing around on quad bikes. At around 4.30pm, after spending an enjoyable day roaring around on their bikes, they made their way down to the river to wash the mud off their clothes and boots. They noticed the river was unusually high, but thought nothing of it. Brett waded into the river a little further than the other two, when suddenly he lost his footing and the current washed him away. Realizing their friend was in trouble, Ashley and Sean swam out to help him. But there was no real panic, and when they caught up with Brett, the three men looked for a way back to the bank. When suddenly, Ashley yelled out, Croc, I'm not joking. Sean frantically swam to the nearest tree, and Ashley followed. The two men then looked around for Brett, who was nowhere to be seen. They managed to pull themselves up the tree, and when they looked around, they saw a crocodile pop out of the water with Brett in his jaws. It was about five meters away from them and lingered in front of them for a few minutes before swimming away with brett in its mouth five minutes later the croc returned without brett and remained at the foot of the tree bobbing up intermittently to let them know he was there the traumatized young man dared not to move but as it got darker sean tried to move higher up the tree to a safer spot in a heart-stopping moment he slipped and fell into the water the terrified man managed to scramble back out before the croc resurfaced. As the night drew in and the temperature dropped, the two friends huddled together for warmth, hanging onto a small tree as it swayed in the wind and rain. All the while, they were unsure what the croc was doing in the water below them. When the boys didn't return home that evening, friends went to look for them. They found the boys abandoned the car and empty trailer, but there was no sign of the three friends. As soon as it got light, a search party was sent out, but the weather was bad and the search was difficult. Eventually, Ashley and Sean heard the shouts of a family friend. Sean shouted back and they warned the searchers not to go into the water as the crocodile was still beneath the tree circling them. The two were able to explain what had happened to their friend. The water in the river was rising and the boys were cold and traumatized, stuck in a tree in the middle of a flooded river being stalked by an angry crocodile. The only way to rescue them was by helicopter so rescuers used a winch to get the two men out of the tree and lower them onto a marine life raft that they had dropped on a tiny island in the middle of the river, about 100 meters from the tree. After successfully being winched to the boat, the boys then had to paddle for their life to dry land, knowing the croc was still watching them, or the noise of the helicopter had made the croc back off. The rescue was successful and the two boys made a full recovery, although were deeply traumatized by the death of Brett. Four days after the incident, searchers tried to track down the crocodile and retrieve Brett's body, but sadly they were unsuccessful. Neither the body of the 22-year-old nor any items of his clothing were ever found. So that's it for this video. If you want more content from us, check out our military history channel, Wars of the World, to learn and educate yourself on wars like World War I and II, to the Vikings and gladiators, to lesser known military history topics. Check out Wars of the World in the description below. Thanks for watching, and as always, we'll see you in the next video.